Hello, welcome to the episode of the Let Build Prosper series. My name is Dr. Vance Ginn. Thank you for joining us. Today, we have a great warrior for economic freedom, someone who's been working on this for a long time and has been doing a lot of great work across the states, looking at what really drives states to prosper. Is it more government spending or less government spending? More taxes or less taxes? What type of taxes? Uh, what about more labor market regulations or less labor market regulations? These are all things that we want to tackle today uh, with none other than Dean Stanzel. Dean, welcome to the Let People Prosper show. Hi, Vance. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's, it's good to have you on the show, Dean. Um, you know, we've been friends for a number of years now, so it's, it's really good to have you on the program. Uh, before we get started, though, I do want to go over your bio here, uh, read for the audience. I think that'll be a good way to get us started here. Um, so Dean Stanzel is a research associate professor at the Bridwell Institute for Economic Freedom at Southern Methodist University. Before entering academia, Stanzel worked for seven years at the Cato Institute, a public policy research organization in Washington, D.C., where he produced over 60 publications on fiscal policy issues. He is the primary author of the Economic Freedom of North America Annual Report, which was recently which was recently released. Um, we're recording this on November 15th, the day that it was released, which provides an economic freedom index for states and provinces in North America and sole author of an economic freedom index for U.S. metropolitan areas. Stanzel's economic Academic publications have appeared in the Journal of Urban Economics, Public Finance Review, Journal of Housing Research, Cato Journal, and a number of others. He's also been cited uh, or published in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, San Francisco Chronicle, Atlanta Journal of Constitution, and more. Um, he's also been in many places across Texas as well, talking about what's going on in the Texas economy. Um, and Stanzo earned his PhD in, and master's in economics from George Mason University and his bachelor's in economics with honors in politics from Wake Forest University. De <clears throat> Dean, welcome to the Well Life People Prosper Show. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Vance. Yeah, you're, you're welcome. Well, it's good to have you on the program. Um, the first thing I like to do with all the audience, the, the the guest is to ask them what motivates them. What drives you, Dean, to do what you do uh, on a daily basis of looking at economic freedom uh, and trying to find ways to to make people better off? Yeah, well, I, I consider myself uh, very blessed to have the job I have at the Blue Wall Institute for Economic Freedom, uh, working with folks like Bob Lawson, who you had on recently, and, and Ryan Murphy, mm -hmm. and Mike Zensky, and and Rick Alm and all the and Mike Cox and I'm probably leaving someone out, but but it's uh you know I started as you read I started in uh, right out of college at a think tank and I really loved working in, in Cato especially being a libertarian myself, uh, but also in D.C. at that age you know it's a really fun place to live. I know you lived there recently, maybe not as fun when you're when you have kids, but but when you're in your twenties, that's just there's just so many people like you there. And so, you know, I did that for a while and, you know, I had gotten kind of uh, <clears throat> into the ideas of, of freedom late in college. And so uh, I just at some point became really uh, motivated by the importance of, of freedom. And, and then when I got to Cato, I got assigned to um, a guy named Steve Moore, who, mm -hmm. who you know, and uh, probably some mm -hmm. of us know quite well. And we got one of the first things I did there is we got started on this project uh, called Fiscal Policy Report Card of the Governors. Hmm. So at, at, at the beginning, I, I started out with this project where I'm collecting data and comparing states to each other. And, and I just, you know, something about that clicked with my temperament or something. And I really enjoyed that project. And then we did another one with cities and, and that, that report card was done every two years. They're still doing it now. Um, but that kind of led to, I think, my getting uh, involved with the, the Economic Freedom of North America report about uh, eight or nine years ago now. I guess it was. It's been a while. But yeah. but it's just uh, you know, the idea of, uh, A, freedom is really super important. 
and be um I just enjoy comparing uh, gathering data and you know uh, comparing states to each other, comparing the, the metro areas to each other. We can get into that later. And mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's uh, and, and to be able to do it, I guess to bring it full circle. So so I, before Bridwell, I worked as a teaching, a full time teaching professor at Florida Gulf Coast University in uh, Fort Myers and at Eastern New Mexico for a couple of years for grad school. And and, and while I enjoyed that. Um, I enjoy this more. <laughs> so yeah. I'm in a position now where I'm not teaching at all. I have a, an undergraduate uh, a student reading group that I run that, that gives me the fun part of teaching, right? Mm -hmm. I sit, sit around with students discussing what we read that week, and then everyone goes home. <laughs> and I don't yeah. grade and, and hear feedback about how I'm such a hard grader and, and, and deal with you know, the headaches of, of students who, who don't like the way you grade or you know creditors that want you to document everything. And, and that stuff's important. I'm not suggesting yeah. that it isn't. But, but but those headaches disappeared, and I'm happy yeah. about that. <laughs> very very blessed. <clears throat> yeah yeah. Well, it's been great that you've been working on this for so long now, and there's been a lot of good information that you've been able to share, you know, over the years in these reports. And I want to dig into that in a, in a little bit. Um, but what what some of the other you know big events that have happened in your life that from was it working at Cato, um, like you mentioned, or other sort of academic situations that really got that really propelled your career to where you're at today. Um, which, I mean, you've been published a lot now. And now, you know, the Second Hour Free North America has really blossomed. A lot of people use it. I know I use it a lot in my research that I do and in testimony that I would give before hearings. Um, this measure has been really important. But what have kind of you, what have you seen has been those stepping stones to get you where you're at? Um, well, Vance, I think this is true for you as well. I'm a first-generation college student. Uh, neither yep. of my parents went to college. Um, I have an older brother who went in the Air Force and, and did, you know, 20-plus years and is now enjoying uh, – his uh, his retirement plus also working so uh, enjoy enjoy two two paychecks but but um, yeah. so, so for me it was all all something new and and, I, and again I, I'm very blessed that I was able to go to a a school like Wake Forest which back then was pretty cheap like U.S. News Best Value or something like that it was, but but they've caught up like all the universities their tuition yeah. caught up <laughs> with all the other uh, kind of private selective liberal arts colleges that, but it was. Um, <clears throat> And of course, the first year was kind of uh, a shock to the system. I uh, I thought I was good at math. So, so, so Vance, I, I grew up in uh, a small town. I was, lived in Miami the first half of my childhood. I'm from Florida, mm. fifth generation native. And uh, around third grade, uh, we moved to a little town uh, about two hours north in the interior of the state, a rural area called Arcadia. Mm. So we had one high school for the whole county. It was small. There was there wasn't a lot of opportunity. <clears throat> I mean, we didn't have like AP classes or anything like that. And I and I I graduated third in my class. I was good at math. I thought, <laughs> and then yeah. uh, I get to wake and I um, that first semester I take calc one at eight in the morning Monday Wednesday Friday with a guy nicknamed Killer Carmichael uh -oh. and by the by the third exam, I had locked up. Uh, uh, I had ensured that there was no way I was going to get a C. So, mm -hmm. so, so I stopped going. <laughs> I took it again the next semester and um, and got an A. Or no, it was A minus, I think. But but with with a guy nicknamed Easy A May, which uh, it, but yeah. it, it wasn't. It wasn't so much the professor. It was more that it just the second time it clicked. And I, like I said, I thought I was good at math, but I hadn't hadn't been exposed because I didn't have that kind of opportunity in a, a small town. And uh, oh, that that fall I also took Spanish lit because I'd had four years of high school Spanish and there was a placement test that was written and I aced the written placement test, but we hadn't been forced to speak it. So I get in this class with seniors and juniors who were just fluent in Spanish and the whole class, of course, is taught in Spanish and I barely got through that thing. It was uh, another example where, you know, I just didn't have people giving me good advice. 
because I didn't yeah. have people in my life who who had gone through this. And yeah. so, so, so that that's where where it all started. Somewhere along the way, I got um, uh, I was going to be a poli sci major, Vance. I I, uh, I don't know if your school did this, but our high school in a small town, every um, graduating class there'd be this special insert in the weekly newspaper. It was a weekly newspaper, <laughs> and uh, each student would have a little blurb saying what they want to do. Oh. I. I my statement was, I want to be a politician <laughs> because I like solving problems. Because I thought, well, politicians, they solve problems, right? Right. And I this view that as you wish. But, but, but you know, a couple, seven years, uh, didn't take seven years, so a couple uh, months in Washington straightened me out pretty, pretty quickly. <laughs> uh, but, but I started as a policy major. And then at, I think sophomore year, I said, well, I, I should take some economics, right? This is relevant to my interests. And I just fell in love with it. We used... Um, hmm. Haney's textbook, which uh, Pete Bedke now is is the, the lead author on, but the economic way of thinking. And, and this was a, um, a macro, micro, one semester kind of just for people who are just going to take one semester. So it doesn't count towards the major. I, I took that, like I said, fell in love with it and then just double majored. And uh, I had a, a professor named John Morehouse uh, a couple of times who was not um, explicitly libertarian, but basically classical liberal and, and, uh, and, and subtly his teaching kind of helped me see the light and um got the started as an intern at Cato right out of college making I think 700 a month or something something <laughs> absolutely low uh but but you know a lot of those internships throughout paid. so really again it was you know I was blessed to at least have some revenue coming in um but but yeah I just loved yeah. the work there and kind of hung around and and uh like I said got involved with with this, these projects with Steve Moore that I really, uh, you know, was passionate about, and it really only left because I had, you know, I had met my my wife. She was working there at the time, and you know, the idea of raising kids in um, she wanted to stay home with the kids, and the idea of raising kids on one salary in the D.C. area, you know, that just didn't seem feasible with the cost of housing and the traffic right. and crime. So, so, I, so I quit. Went back. Uh, I had actually started at George Mason. Uh, I first went to Georgetown in a public policy program. Didn't like that at all. Uh, right, right out of college, so I just did that part time for half a semester, and then I got good advice from folks at Cato. Said, "Go to George Mason. Uh, their economics program is less heavily less heavily emphasizes the math, and it more focuses on you know, economic theory, uh, economic ideas that you learn as an undergrad." Which you know, it's such a disconnect, Vance. I'm sure you're aware of yeah. this, but. Maybe some of your listeners aren't. If you follow my senior year in college, I went to my advisor. I said, you know, I think I want to do grad school in econ. He said, oh, well, you should have majored in math. And of course, this was following my senior year. It was too late. And they actually had a joint math econ uh, major designed just sure. for that. But again, another example where I wasn't tuned in to the idea that we well, need to reach out and ask people things and seek information. So, but, but yeah, yeah, it becomes so much more mathematical at the, at the grad school level where it's not, it's not really what I think of as economics. And I think that's uh, unfortunate, but, um, but so, so yeah, so I, I uh, quit my job because I was going to take the PhD, finish up the PhD part-time. I did the first year full-time, but I never got myself out the door to, to take a class. <laughs> and there's that clock that's ticking. It's like, Oh wait, you now have to appeal to the Dean to keep your credits. And, so uh, my wife yeah. got a job um, at Philip Morris down in Richmond, which paid very well, which gave the opportunity for me to say, well, heck with it. I'm just going to quit. <laughs> I'll quit my job, go back to school full time and finish this darn thing off. And and uh, that's what I did. And it was, uh, you know, it, it went smoothly from there pretty much. But um, <clears throat> but yeah, I'm, I'm glad that, that we made that change. And, and I really, you know, I enjoyed my, my uh, 12 years or so 
teaching full time and, and being a you know, part of an economics department and all that, that was something about that, that that I enjoyed. But when this when the call came from what was then the O'Neill Center here in Dallas to uh, come join them, I and my wife grew up in the area, in the Fort Worth side, and it was a no brainer. It was a big pay increase and and, uh, yeah. and and time to do you know more responsibility for doing the things that I actually enjoy doing. And so yeah, I'm super blessed yeah. to be here and. Uh, <clears throat> Yep. No, it is truly a blessing, Dean, um, going through all those things. Some of you I've talked about before, but it's the institutional changes. We think about a lot of times in economics, these institutional changes, Douglas North, you know, and Pete Betke talked a lot about these institutions and had Betke on recently. And he talked a lot about all that. Right. Um, And but it's also in our own lives that we have these institutional changes, structural breaks is what we might call them in economics, where it kind of sets us on a different path. Um, you know, you and I both were first generation college students. I grew from a very humble background, you know, and and then got into economics later, (laughs) uh, (laughs) after being a a rocker for a while, playing in a rock band as a drummer and and kind of moving things in a different direction. (laughs) Who I never would have thought I've been doing a podcast, you know, talking about economic freedom and everything else. And and yet here we are, you know, doing these things. And it, it also shows the opportunity that is available in a place like the United States of America, where we have these opportunities to flourish, um, to overcome maybe wherever we started, we've got equal opportunities, not necessarily the equal outcomes, uh, which is what socialism tries to breed, which ultimately makes it to where everyone's mediocre because then there's no incentive for people to improve, uh, be more productive in their life and overcome those challenges because why should I? What's going to be what's going to be the rewards that we see? Um, and, and I think that may you know bring us into, and we can get back to this later, but I really want to dive into the economic freedom of North America and what you see are some of the building blocks of what works well, what doesn't work well, um, but maybe before we get there, what exactly is it? What what are, what are you measuring? I know some of the audience may be familiar with the economic freedom of the world um, that's been out for a while, looking at a number of measures. Like as you said, um, Bob Lawson was on recently, and we talked about that in those those metrics. Um, economic freedom North America is a, similar, but there are some differences. Um, how, how would you describe the economic freedom of North America report? Can I jump on another point first, real quick? Of course. Uh, the uh, you brought up economic, uh, equal opportunity and. Yeah. <clears throat> And I think that um, one of the important things about our country is that you do have that class mobility, the the ability to not sort of guarantee, of course, the ability to not be uh, stuck in whatever you know socioeconomic uh, class your your parents were. But yeah. but I would say that, that I think this is a blind spot for a lot of libertarians and conservatives in that the job isn't done in a sense. You know, it, there is not equal opportunity in, in the U.S. If you grew up, if you grew up in South Dallas, for example, from from, from my area, your educational experience is not going to be as good as if you grow up in Highland Park, or University Park, or mm. suburbs, Plano. And, and and there's so many ways that we can easily make that more equal. And, yeah. and there's been progress this year in, in some of the uh, the school choice uh, efforts to allow parents to be able to to uh, basically vote with their feet and get their kids out of those failing schools, and and, and also then change the incentives for those schools to uh, to improve and not just reward failure, but uh, but but put mm-hmm. competition in the system. I always tell my my students, look at our our university system in the U.S. People come from all over the globe 
to attend our universities and our colleges. They don't come here for our high schools, right? No. It, what's, the, what's the biggest difference between the two with the colleges and universities? Students pick where they go. Yeah. With the with the high schools, they're stuck in whatever the neighborhood school is for the most part, uh, unless of course you have wealthy parents and then you, you go to some private school and that and that's fine. I don't I don't begrudge those with the means to do so to escape those uh, schools that are bad. But, but anyway, I think that's a really important thing that, that often gets yeah. overlooked uh, the importance of that, but, but to the yeah, end, and, and I think I, I agree with you. I totally agree with you. And I think it's, it's so important for us to have, you know, school choice and competition in the system. Um, I'm hopeful that Texas, we both live in Texas, um, that we will get some here soon. There's a lot of talk about it this next session, um, the governor, Lieutenant governor and others have already been talking about it. But if you look at what happened in Arizona with Doug Ducey out there, I mean, universal education savings accounts is kind of the, the gold standard right now of the next steps. And I, and I'm, I'm hopeful that that will happen here because I, I agree with you, Dean. I mean, education is key. I think if we had a better education system, K through 12, we would have fewer people in, in prisons, less crime, you know, there's always going to be some bad actors that are going to be out there, but the, the better educated that you are, the more likely you're going to have a well-paid job, the the more likely I think that you're going to be able to be satisfied where you're at and where you work. We spend so much time working is just so important. So I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's super important. Um, all right. So, so on to the EFNA. Yes. So, uh, so you had Bob on recently, he probably told the story, but, but the, uh, you know, the economic freedom of the world came about, uh, as an effort, Milton Friedman and and a bunch of other um, you know, Nobel Prize winning economists, public policy people, you know, how can we compare the uh, you know the level of freedom across countries of the globe? But especially, it was during the Cold War, and there was all this uh, rhetoric coming out of Russia, uh, Soviet Union, how they were cleaning our clocks, basically. And so, so, uh, but anyway, so it took them, you know, ten years maybe, if I remember right, to figure out how they were going to measure it. And then a couple of years after they got the country report rolling on an annual basis. Uh, they started uh, an effort to say, well, wait a minute, this, uh, this thing, economic freedom, it varies within countries as well as across countries. And so, especially for for Canada, which is the, the Fraser Institute, a Canadian think tank, is the, is the, the publisher of, of both of these, really, but they co-publish with other groups. But you know, for them, Alberta was always an outlier and still is, is as being a, a more economically free province, and a couple of provinces, and, and the others, you know, Kind of fall behind, so so it started as an effort to for them to compare, you know how how much better Alberta was, I think, and 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 then but but anyhow, so so uh, that initiative grew out of the other one, and, and it's the same basic idea: how do we get the uh, the data and organize it in a way that provides kind of a credible measure of the level of uh, freedom or the level of lack lack of government interventions. Sometimes the way to think of it that we're trying to measure. The level of government intervention in the economy, and then a, yeah. a few years, well, maybe eight years ago now, she spent, not too long after I got involved with the project, we found a, a Fred McMahon, a, a scholar at Fraser, found a guy down in Mexico, Jose Tara, who uh, who literally went <laughs> had to travel the country of Mexico, uh, in, especially in the, some of the smaller states, going and hand collecting data, <laughs> going and digging through file cabinets and stuff, and and so uh, after that first year, it got easier for him, but but he did uh, yeoman's work. To to, uh, to uh, allow us to truly be measuring the economic freedom of North America, because previously it was just U.S. and Canada, which obviously Mexico is part of North America too. So, so that's that's where that uh, kind of started, and 
where where it is for now. You know, it's 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 a work in progress, like like anything of this nature. You can always you can always do better. The biggest obstacle is is finding comparable data that um, allows us to compare the states to the provinces, especially, and, yeah. and finding data that's you know that's. Uh, that's actually uh, reproduced on a, on a continual or a frequent regular basis. Right. So there's a couple of things out there that, that we could use, but it's like someone did it once and then they, they didn't do it against so you have one you know, year of data, which isn't really going to help you uh, with a measure over time. But, uh, but anyhow, yeah. no. Yeah. Yeah. And then in, in the, the big three types of measures that you look at, right. Are um, government spending, Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and taxes and then labor market regulation. Yes. Yes. So so we have uh, three broad areas in the index. The first one is government spending, where we basically take the the state and local the total uh, spending in each state and divide it into three different categories. So we break the, the budget into three pieces. But for each of those pieces to make it comparable across states with different income levels, we're, we're trying to measure like what is the burden of this, not per person level, but per, you know, what share of your income is this really consuming? <clears throat> so we take those divided by personal income, and then we set uh, the most free, or in this case, the lowest spending would get a 10, highest spending would get a zero, and then everyone else is kind of proportionally in between. So so you get, in the case of spending, we have three variables, got three scores between zero and 10, average those to get a spending score. Okay, we do that same thing for tax, for revenue or taxes, where uh, we have the three pieces of the, the revenue pie. And then we add a fourth variable for the income tax rate, because as you know, the income tax is so destructive to, uh, to, to economic growth and economic activity. It's basically a penalty on productive activity. So, so we get that in there twice to, to capture the, uh, the margin, the, the effect of the top marginal rate. And of course, for Texas, it's zero. So that's great and much in our favor. And, and I think a big contributor in part, at least, to a lot of the migration uh, out of high-tax states like California. Um, so we have those same process, zero to 10 for each of the four, and then average them. <clears throat> and then we have uh, three three measures of labor market freedom. We look at the minimum wage on an annualized basis, and then again, dividing by income for uh, per capita income for the state to uh, to make for better comparisons. For example, uh, in, a, in a poor state like Mississippi, the federal minimum wage of 725 is binding, right? But, but in a rich state yeah. like New Jersey or Connecticut, it's really not. And mm. you know, for the uninitiated, so you've got this supply and demand, uh, West Virginia PowerPoint here, where it meets, yeah. right? The equilibrium wage, if the uh, price floor, no wage, is put above that, then that's going to create unemployment. It's going to uh, create a situation where more people want to work than, than, than employers want to hire. And, but what I'm saying is that in a state, in a rich state, eh, maybe not, right? Maybe, maybe mm -hmm. that, especially if they still have the federal level of 725 probably no one's actually paying. That's what's what we call non-binding. Um, so anyway, so we have that variable, which I think is the most important of the three um, to, to see basically how binding is the minimum wage in that state. Of course, a lot of states have higher than, than the federal now, and that's been a growing trend. And, and localities now, of course, have gotten into it. And um, so, so, uh, so that's a, kind of a dynamic, uh, uh, frequently changing measure. Um, then we look at to what degree do private sector employers have to compete with the public sector for their workers? So we take the total number of government workers at the state and local level and divide that by employment in the in the state itself, just to get what you know what what share of employment is is public sector at state and local level at least. And then finally, we we want to capture the, the the impact of union rules in the in the state. And this is uh, maybe the 
the, the variable that's most difficult to explain. And, and you know, the easiest thing is, all right, well, let's just have uh, say, is it a right you know, right to work variable? Is there a right to work law or not? But if you think about the way this index works, then you have, you know, on that one third of area three, everyone's going to get either a zero or a 10, right? Because either you have it or you don't. And, and so well before I got involved with this project, it was decided that taking what they call union density, so the number of union employees in the state of all kinds, private, public, whatever, divided by the number of employees as a whole. <clears throat> so what percentage of the workforce is uh, is unionized? And that is a proxy for to what degree do union rules uh, create uh, kind of uh, barriers between uh, employers and employees. And it's not to say that unions you know, should, should are a bad thing per se. Uh, right, people ought to have the right to freely associate as they wish. But uh, but anyways, that's the third variable. And same process: zero to ten, average them, and then average those three area scores. And it's uh, <clears throat> you know it doesn't change a lot from year to year, but uh, but but over time, yeah, you can see uh, you can see changes with that, that reflect you know policy changes when when states you know, lower their income taxes. North Carolina has done that lately, and they're uh, up into the top ten this year. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, the things like that definitely are, are captured by the index, and, and you know it's been used in a ton of research to uh, find that uh, states with higher freedom, economic freedom, tend to have better outcomes of all sorts. Yeah, better outcomes with GDP per capita, um, yeah. personal income. Um, There's a, a lot of variables that are measuring basically prosperity. Um, are they're they're at least correlated, right? Yeah, yeah, and it goes beyond just what what you think of off the top of your head, income, income yeah. growth, poverty, things like that. But but to, to all sorts of other, uh, especially, you know, the country uh, index is older, but especially with that one, you know, people have gotten into all sorts of things, corruption, uh, pollution, oh, yeah. uh, ch childhood mortality, all sorts of things that, that you can, all sorts of ways you can take it and still uh, make a contribution to the literature because uh, yeah. it's funny thing that's studied yet, but, but it's, it's getting pretty, uh, pretty uh, wide, wide net is out there. No, yeah, that's great. It's great. And I think too, you know, some of this has some economic assumptions that go into it, like we do with most of our models and indices and everything else. And part of it, I guess, is that the more government spending that you have, the less free that you're going to be. Um, I guess right. to, to some, to some, you know, let's say that we were a Keynesian <laughs> person, um, they, they might push back, right? And say, well, that's not the case because you need these roles for government. You've got to have government spending money. So how is that reducing people's economic freedom if they are the ones that are providing property rights and other things that are helping out people in the economy? What, what, what do you say to something about like that? Well, they're just wrong. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kidding, kidding. Uh, no, no, all right, Don, yeah, they, have yeah. a, they have a different uh, view of than I do. In, in my view, anytime government takes from you taxes, it, sure, taxes are voluntary in, in theory, um, but but try not paying them, right? It's, yeah, uh, I was going to say that. Yeah, that and uh, <clears throat> so to me, that's an infringement on your your uh, your freedom and. And so for sure, you could get into a, a heated debate, even amongst kind of libertarians as to, well, we need government to do this. We're going to have to have it to do the military, right? We couldn't have a private military. I mean, I, I would argue that we don't need it for anything, that yeah. that, that anarchy uh, as, as a concept could work through private voluntary uh, uh, relationships with each other. Now, now the, the thing is, as kind of a, a 
a thought exercise or, or an argument over beers is one thing, but 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 of course it becomes irrelevant because how the hell are you going to get there from where we are now, right? You can't yeah. go from here to uh, all of a sudden every blow of whole thing up, and so. I'm very sympathetic to my anarcho-capitalist friends' views. Uh, I just don't think that in terms of other than arguing with each other, there's really a whole lot we can do with that. Um, I think we need to to try to, as much as possible, move in the direction of more freedom and and uh, hope for the best. <laughs> yeah. The system is not designed to really make this easy yeah, I'm not optimistic. Yeah, and Dean, I mean, I think going down that route a little bit is that you know Milton Friedman said um, the ultimate burden of government is not by how much it taxes, but by how much it spends, right? Yeah. And and so spending is really that ultimate burden, and and this is the reason why, like in my research, I do I work so much on spending limits and trying to restrain the growth of government spending because if you don't spend it, then you don't need to tax, right? Like. Right, right. Whatever you, whatever. So you come up with different things the government's going to do first. Those are the demands by the people, by the voters, and everything else. They decide on what types of government that they want to impose on people. Then they need bureaucrats. They need someone to to run it and fund it, whether it's national defense or something else. And so, i.e., that's going to create an, a reason for government spending. And then you need to find a way to to fund it most efficiently. So taxes are kind of like the secondary to government spending in that sense. Um, it you know it's kind of well, but in some sense I guess it could be like the chicken versus the egg, <laughs> which comes yeah. first. But but I think in some sense it is government spending that really drives the burden of government in our lives, which is one reason why I think it's so important to have it in your in your measure. Yeah, for sure, and and it's different for states than for than for countries in the sense sure. that especially here in the u.s i mean the the um the, the federal government basically has a, a credit card with no credit limit and it seems uh, you know, there must be some tangible limit up there somewhere but that's so, so that they're not really limited by how much they can bring in, in revenue to what they can spend they should be of course in my yeah. view but but that's another podcast um but yeah but at the states, <laughs> as you know it's different at the states because most uh i believe it's 49 you might know the number yep. on this yeah, forty nine. I think Vermont. I think Vermont's the only one that doesn't have a balanced budget amendment. Yeah, they're ranked forty uh, fourth, I think forty fifth, something like that. Okay, uh, see, I mean, yeah. But but the point is that yes, so there's that that tension between the two, which is why in the in the country level thing, whereas revenue and spending are not separated uh, into two different areas for the for the states, it matters because uh, number one because you know, they have to, to balance their budget. But, but more importantly, because uh, some states get more kind of proportionally in terms of federal aid than other states. Yeah. So if, if, you're, if you're bringing in money from collected from across the whole country, well, then that's a little less burdensome for the uh, the taxpayers in that state. And so, so the, all that stuff kind of in, in the mix requires us to kind of separate these out and look at them look at them separately. But but yeah, for sure, the, the notion of, um, of limits, uh, spending limits is something I looked at many, many years ago when I was at Cato. Uh, and I sense there haven't been a lot of new ones passed, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Or I remember Tabor in Colorado was was a big one, but that's got to be 20 years ago now, right? So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that one's been around for a while. Um, Texas <laughs> did pass a stronger one this last year in 2021. Well, that's it's based right. on yeah, population yeah. and inflation. Uh, yeah. I have been working on that for a number of years and testifying nice. on it for nice. several sessions, and they finally got it passed. Um, so we'll see how that one goes. But but you're right. There needs to be a lot more done across the across the country. Um, when, you're, when you were looking at these overall numbers, 
Rivers. And, and uh, I'm looking at the report now, and I'll make sure to put this in the show notes page so everybody has access to it. Um, and it's at FraserInstitute.org, O-R-G. You can find that find it there. Um, hey, send them yeah. to FreeTheWorld.com. FreeTheWorld.com okay, takes you directly to the interactive website with the map and you can get the country stuff there as well. Perfect. Yeah. Freetheworld.com. Okay, good. Um, so I'll put all that in the show notes page as well. Perfect. And, and, you know, it's broken down, Dean, I know you brought this up to me on the differences, but for the audience, there's the all government level, kind of the figure 1.1 that kind of breaks it down for all of them. Uh, and then there's the uh, summary of the ratings for of U.S. states and Puerto Rico for economic freedom at the subnational level. Um, it, both of them are important for different reasons, but what's kind of your distinction between the two? And, and the second one, of course, is just for the United States on figure 1.2b. Um, but what, what do you see as the differences there? So, so the uh, the first one, the all government level, is the one that's most important for the, the publisher, Fraser Institute, because it allows the uh, Canadians to compare their provinces to U.S. states. One of the problems that uh, it creates for for the U.S. audience is that when you pull in the the federal data, uh, as we talked about just a minute ago, some states, you know, are uh, basically net uh, taxpayers in the sense that they get uh, less in federal spending in their state than they their residents pay in taxes and vice versa. So there's a whole lot of uh, moving parts in there that when you add in that federal piece, you get some strange things like look at the figure 1.1, the fourth, the tied for fourth most free is South Carolina. And, you know, if you you, you look at the, um, the subnational index, it just looks at the state and local, they're 24th. Um, so, so there's a handful of states where it makes a bigger difference and you get kind of... Uh, weird outcomes like that with states looking really good that that maybe aren't quite so free if you're just comparing them to other states and i think montana's another one it's up there at sixth but it's 18th and the other one um, anyhow yeah so, so yeah. For, for my work and 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 even if you look at what academic um researchers use you know like it or not most people in america don't care about canada so so the, the subnational index allows them to ignore Canada, pretend it's not there, and just focus on on, on the old USA. And, and, and but, but more, I think it is a more accurate measure of the relative level of freedom across the states in the U.S. And so that's the one that I use in my work and that I emphasize in you know in in sort of you know discussions out there in the world about it. Um, yeah. And that's the one on which uh, New York and California are 50th and 49th again. Uh, Florida's first, New Hampshire, South Dakota, Texas and Tennessee are tied for fourth. So uh, that, that that to me is the one that, that matters. And, and, and that distinction of uh, you look at our four most populous states, I mean, it couldn't be more contrasted in terms of their uh, economic policy approach with uh, Texas and Florida up at the top and New York and California literally at the very bottom. Um, yeah, but, and, it, yeah. And, it, and it matters. You see the migration out of those states that's uh, headed south and and uh, east. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. Thank you for that overview, Dean. Yeah, because I was looking because Florida, it, it's been New Hampshire has been number one the last couple of years, right? New Hampshire is typically right up there at the top, if not, yeah, if not first, at least you know second. So yeah, that, yeah, that was a that, they were they were first last year. So there was yeah. a slight change there. Um, yep. But, and and but you have been working on this for, for a long time. You have the Economic Freedom North America Conference there at SMU and, and everything else. And you know, I'm always um, excited when the new report comes out. And I, when, when I saw this report, something that kind of stood out to me and, and the audience should know as well is this is the 22 report 
2022 report, mm-hmm, um, right. but it's for 2020. It's always a couple years of data. So this is the first report that's come out since the pandemic, since the you know, shutdowns and, and everything else that happened like that. Um, but even in that, it's it, the, it's only a few months. It's, it's what, four months? Right. It's, it's the fiscal years yes. that are in yes. there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so two things that we rely on the U.S. Census Bureau for their uh, fiscal data that they collect from the state and local governments. And it is, there's always a two-year lag on that. I think it comes out early like early in 2022, the 2020 data came out. <clears throat> so um, so there's that. And, and yes, it's important to understand that almost every state has a fiscal year that ends at the end of June. COVID started, what, mid-March. So you've got all right. of June, all of uh, May, all of April, and part of not even four months worth of COVID-related changes that are being, and that are being only indirectly captured by what we do here. We don't have a measure here that looks at the COVID restrictions. We have fiscal data and we have the labor market freedom stuff. And so, so surely, you know, all of that spending that, uh, that occurred, the, the, uh, the federal government spending, some of that filtered down to state and local. And so in the state and local index, some of that will be in there, but again, only in this year's report, only a couple months worth of it. And, and despite that, despite the fact that we don't have a direct measure and it was only uh, like a third of a year, the, um, the overall uh, on the all governments index it includes the federal stuff. The, the average score declined uh, from 8.03 to 7.9, and that brings it down to the lowest point. It had been kind of uh, gradually rising, uh, the lowest point since 2009, right, right during the Great uh, Recession, and it's uh, the biggest drop since that year as well, 2009. So I expect next year we'll yeah. see a, a larger, uh, a larger decline because uh, it'll capture a full 12 months worth. And um, so anyway, yeah, it's it's uh, similar to what they saw at the, the country level. It was a big a big drop in 2020, and no no big surprise there, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was talking to Bob Lawson, because um, the economic freedom of the world in the United States went back to the, the lowest score since 1975. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge yeah. drop o- overall, um, but. He kind of made the similar point, though, that 2020, the next one using 2021 data could be even worse, given what's happened. There may be some updates um, along the way as well. Uh, But I think this is why it's so important to look at these these data is that, you know, look, even if you have a situation where there is shutdowns, shutdowns that are going on in places like Florida, you know, Texas, where we we were we are we we were shut down almost for a full year. If you think about the restrictions that were in place and everything else, um, but the government spending part of it didn't increase dramatically. There were other ways. So always relative, relatively speaking, Texas, Florida, New Hampshire, some of these other states that are up here near the top continued to remain at the top. It wasn't like they were going to fall off um, because right. some of those things that took place, whereas those states that are usually more uh, big government in a lot of other ways, they stayed near the near the bottom. Is that is Would that be a good way to help explain some of that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that for the fiscal data, which makes up a big portion of what we do, yeah. Not only did um, we have, right, so we had increased spending, um, but on the revenue side, uh, yeah. we had declines in tax revenue, and for both of them, the denominator, personal income, also declined quite a bit. So there's a lot, a lot going on there, a lot of moving parts again. And and you mentioned revisions. I do want to highlight that, that sure. each year, the um, the previous year's data, the Census Bureau releases. 
and up a revised version of the previous year's data. So, so looking back at um, 2019 scores in this year's report, in other words, the, the year before the most recent ones, New Hampshire wasn't first last year, although they were in last year's report. Uh, they were actually fourth. So, uh, so wow. Florida was first last year as well based on that revised data and, and, and given all that went on during COVID, I would expect that there's going to be some revisions, uh, probably larger than normal revisions. And, and those are going to go both directions. So it's a net wash probably overall, but, but for some states, yeah. you might see a bigger move than normal, just based on the fact that the data wasn't, uh, wasn't complete when they submitted it uh, this time a year ago or whatever. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good, Dean. And one of the things that I, I like to look at with the report is um, I know whenever I was testifying before Ways and Means Committee here in Texas, I've used this report quite a bit to say, look, here's how Texas ranks compared to the other states. Because one thing that legislators like to hear is how their state compares with other states, right? <laughs> how, how are we yeah, doing? Yeah. yeah, right, right. And so they're, they're looking at these things. And of course, in Texas, we always want to be number one. <laughs> we want to be yeah. top. And so even if we're ranked fourth in this index, it's like, okay, well, why? Um, I'm also doing a lot of good work with um, the Pelican Institute in Louisiana. Louisiana uh, ranks 20th. They actually improved a little bit, for, I think from 23rd in the previous report to, to 20th. Um, but one of the things that's interesting right now, Dean, is that a lot of states are moving to this flat tax revolution of, of flat in, in personal income taxes. And I'm, I'm thinking that that's going to have a positive effect on, on these measures and the economic freedom of North America uh, moving forward, um, because that's a big part of it. As you mentioned earlier, you know, personal income taxes disincentivize people to work. They disincentivize people to live there, so they move, and that creates economic effects, dynamic effects uh, overall as well. Whereas those states, those nine in, no income tax states, uh, no personal income tax, Texas being one, Florida being one, Tennessee being another. I mean, a lot of them are the top ones of your overall measure. <laughs> you know, the ones with the highest income tax rates, um, California, New York, uh, Hawaii, uh, you know, some of those other ones are near the bottom. And, but even some of the states, there are now 14 states that will soon have a flat tax after four of them have done it so far this year. But even if you look at the first nine before that first, um, before the first, uh, sorry, the last five that have been added, those flat tax states, even the no income tax states still do better in terms of GDP growth, migration, uh, and job creation. I've been looking at this recently. So that's, it's kind of fresh on my mind. Um, and so it, it, in my view, we should be finding ways to get rid of income taxes altogether. Flat taxes are are nice, but but no income tax would be even better. And I guess that would report better on the economic freedom of North America. Um, but then the question is, where do you get the money from and things and things of that nature? But <laughs> but where do you see where are some policy indicators from the research you've been doing? I know you're not necessarily a policy guy, Dean, uh, but just from the from the economic and the data that you've seen, where should states be moving to in order to increase economic freedom and have more prosperity? Yeah, so so there, there are two that, that jump out to me. Well, one is is the, the minimum wage and here it's you know trying to stem the tide of all these huge increases in the minimum wage <clears throat> you know it was uh, it was a long time ago but in 1987 the new york times uh editorial page the, the, their editors not some bed writer uh put out the headline that the ideal the correct minimum wage is zero and, and you know a lot of time has passed and things have changed so you wouldn't see that in the new york times now but 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 i i would agree with them that the minimum wage is a poorly targeted policy that uh, while it may be intended to help low-skilled workers it, and, and it does help some of uh, it also hurts a lot of them who are shut out of the market because they're they're, they're priced out of the market but but anyhow I, I think that's an area that's 
Uh, I'm not very optimistic that uh, there'll be change. The, the, the one where I think there, there's more optimism is kind of the one you were talking about is the income taxes. I was just looking at the current income tax rates. <clears throat> California's top rate is 13.3%. So, so if you are a, uh, a not, not that the, there are the only people that matter, but if you're a, a business decision maker, a CEO of a company, right? Someone who has a pretty high income, a lot of your income is going into that, that uh, theory, into that top bracket for some of them. And so for you to say, all right, I'm going to move my headquarters from you know, San Francisco to Austin, that's a huge, huge chunk of savings tax-wise and housing-wise, right, in terms of the housing costs of San Francisco compared to Austin. I know Austin's housing prices are out of control, but it's nothing compared, right, to Northern California. And so, right. so yeah, I think, it, I think voters can more easily wrap their head around we need to lower income tax rates than they can. We need to get rid of the minimum wage. I think we, as economic educators, have failed to convince people that the minimum wage yeah. is as bad as it is. And, and, and I don't know. It's uh, yeah, the thirty-second sound bite uh, in favor of the yeah. minimum wage is so much easier to make than the one explaining why. You know, yeah. This, well, uh, I mean, I mean, it's even shorter than that. You know, <laughs> Dean, you must hate poor people. Right, period. Precisely. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's which, exactly. which isn't the isn't the case. It's actually that yeah. I I hate people being poor because right. you're, you're essentially right. forcing people to be poor with the minimum wage. The real minimum wage, as we know, as you mentioned, was is always zero dollars because if you don't have a job, if you can't get your foot in the door to move up the income ladder, your wage is going to be zero. Well, and so much of it goes to people who are say high school students or college students of of you know reasonably wealthy families working a part-time job just to make some spending money, they don't need this, you know, uh, boost from a minimum wage that applies to everyone. Something like the earned income tax credit is a much more targeted way to try to help those who really are in need of, of assistance. There's plenty that are like that, but, uh, but the, the minimum wage just is, is uh, too much of a blunt instrument to be as, as useful as, as something like the earned income tax credit. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Now, I, I mean, overall, you know, look, I think there's a lot more we could dive into with the Economic Freedom North America. Um, I, I hope that the viewers will go and look at the show notes page. Go to um, Free the World. Is that what you said? Freetheworld.com. Yep. Free the world. Yeah. Freetheworld.com. Um, and um, there's a dog in the background just in case the audience yes, is wondering what uh, that is. It's trash day, so uh, trash trucks. It's all good. Here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But 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 I think there's there's so much good things to look at. I mean, you also will go through and say, hey, here's how um, economic freedom in the top quartile, middle quartile, you know, two middle quartiles and the bottom quartile, how that compares with different measures of economic data um, and things of that nature, I think is really helpful for the, the viewer to see, hey, you know, this isn't just about economic freedom. This is really about people. It's about improving people's lives. It kind of goes full circle again, Dean, to what we were discussing earlier is, you know, many people may start off from humble beginnings but they have the opportunity to succeed. Some maybe have different opportunities as we discussed, um, but if we have more economic freedom and economic freedom in terms of spending taxes and labor market regulations are important, but a lot of that underlying, those are more macro, underlying a lot of that is gonna, is gonna be school choice, right? Or, or schools, education comes from government spending. <laughs> um, what the influences are on the business tax climate from the tax system that's in place are gonna have microeconomic effects. Um, and then labor, whether or not you're able to get a job are gonna influence your future. One of the big things that I've also looked at over time is occupational licensing. I mean. 
that is one that hits the poor the hardest and keeps people down throughout the process. Um, and so I, I really appreciate all the work that you, Dean, and uh, that you do, Dean, um, here on this for index and and continue to to do it over time to let people prosper. Um, what would be kind of your your what are your last remarks for the audience about this or anything else you'd like to discuss before we um, we close? I, I mean, I, I think Vance that it's just uh, to me it's about awareness awareness of the importance of freedom and how big a difference it can make in the standard of living of of people not only uh, here in the U.S. like. Texas compared to California, but globally as well, right? I mean, the developing world where where the income differences are huge, not just you know relatively small for us and across the states. And so, um, so yeah, I think it, raising awareness of the importance of public policy and, and getting people to uh, to to understand why it matters that we have good, solid uh, economic policy and policy of all sorts to kind of help people be freer because when you're freer, you're more able to prosper. I think that's, you know, your, your, uh, the title of your, your, uh, podcast uh, makes it, uh, makes it the point very, uh, very clearly and succinctly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, thanks again, Dean, for all the work you're doing and for being on the podcast today. Um, and for our audience, please go and rank rate us as five stars. We love that. And subscribe okay. to let people prosper show wherever you, uh, wherever you get it and wherever you listen to, um, you can also find it at vance.substack.com. That's where all the show notes will be. Um, thank you, Dean, for being on the show and for everyone for listening, let people prosper. Yeah.